The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Nate Spienberg. This is the second part of our two-part interview with Nate. Nate returns home to upstate New York and starts a new phase in his life, getting married, getting a civilian job, and joining the National Guard. Nate left the active force, but couldn't leave his frenetic work ethic. As life intensifies, Nate leans heavily on the experience and capabilities of his senior NCOs in the Guard. Nate finds that many of the lessons he learns in the Guard can, can be applied to his civilian career. This is the second half of his story. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Alpha Coffee. Alpha Coffee is a veteran and military spouse co-owned and operated company dedicated to offering their customers amazing coffee, promoting the warrior lifestyle, and providing the highest levels of service and giving back to our military and veterans. I've been drinking their Warrior Select and Double Barrel Black Brews for the past two weeks, and there is nothing more comforting on a cold gray day in the Pacific Northwest or at West Point than a smooth cup of dark coffee. Please support this company, and when you purchase either on Amazon or on their website, alpha.coffee.com, use our promo code Through the Gray. Thank you. Welcome back to Through the Gray. We're with Nathan Spienberg. So Nathan, at this point, you're transitioning out of active duty army. Um, you've had the opportunity to get a civilian job. You've proposed to your future wife and you've gotten an opportunity to, to stay in service in the National Guard as a company commander. Talk me through that transition. Well, as we talked last time, you know, I, I you know, the whole touch conversation, a little crazy. I think I had this desire to try to jam as many things into a five pound bag as possible. Um, so like, you know, and also, you know, stick with the plan, you know, the stick with the plan mentality. So to me, it was like, all right, I'm off active duty. I'm going to get married. So I'm going to propose. I got to I got to stay in timeline with my classmates, because if I don't stay in time with my classmates, I could be a captain forever. Right. I want to make major. I need to do a company command. Um, so let's do company command right away. And oh, by the way, I need to start my civilian career path because I need to be successful there. So that that's the mindset. Right. And and so, yeah, I jammed it all in the same bag. So I decided to go into the construction industry. Now, I hear, you know, young Nathan thinks that he knows everything about construction. I, I had built pole barns and porches, and I was the helper, right? I was carrying the shingles up and down the ladders. I was carrying the lumber. Um, if I was lucky, I got to use the saw. I was swinging a hammer. I did not know anything about industrial construction. So what do I get a job in? Industrial construction of semiconductor facilities. Um, and I think I thought I knew what I was talking about. I really had no clue, right? And... um I had no clue about what marriage was like, right? I just know I had been dating my wife since 2002 and it was time to get married <laughs> and uh, start a family. And um, I knew nothing about National Guard. So now, so so the way I'm, I guess I can explain this forward is now I got three parallel paths going on and I, I want to call them line of efforts because that'd be, it'd be like I had planned it all along, right? So, um, well, sort of the first one, so the National Guard, you know, active duty, I show up, 
and I'm hard charging, hard charging as much as I can be, right? Because I you're only doing it part time. But the first experience is a 14 day, what they call annual training, um, in the middle of June, and I hadn't even, you know, you know, the active duty was still in me. I mean, I'd only been 60 days, you know, since I was active duty, and I'm like, we're gonna do PT every morning. We're gonna do this. We're eat when we have time priorities of work. We're going to patrol every day. And I'm like, well, no, I'm in a construction company. I had never been in a horizontal construction company in my entire engineer career. Um, and this is where everything starts to get really cloudy because I'm talking to people on the civilian side. They're like, oh, you're an engineer. I'm like, well, yeah, well, you're a licensed engineer. Oh, so you're designing things. I'm like, well, no, I'm an engineer um, in the army national guard, which is not designing things. And then I'm a construction superintendent in the civilian world. Um, I'm not an engineer at all. And confusion would set in often trying to explain what the hell I did for a living. Um, there's these, these visions of Nathan with his PE stamp, right? At a drafting table, stamping things. That was not me, nor could I, I probably would have died a slow death if I had to do that. And, um, I was really out in the field trying to get subcontractors to do their job in accordance with the schedule. And then at National Guard, now I have a fleet of D7 dozers. Last time I saw a D7 dozer was when we, it was up armored and we were driving it through a minefield. And here I am going, what in God's name am I doing? And, um, you know, you talk about relying on NCOs. This is where I was fortunate, right? Like, I only see them once a month, but I had a few NCOs that had been in the CBs active duty. And you find out that a lot of the, you know, in the late 2000s, a lot of the E7s and E8s were not the army of the 2000s where promotions were coming fast. And they had been E7s for a while, and they had started their journey in the military in the early eighties. So I had, I was fortunate to have some national guard guys that had been all over the globe when they were active in the early eighties and had been either Navy, Air Force or, um, army. And Oh, by the way, did the same construction stuff in the civilian world. So that citizen soldier thing started to make sense to me. Now I have guys that know more about construction, not from an army manual but because they do it for a living. Then when we get together and we get a mission to build a ball field, which we did, to build a road at Fort Drum, which we did, these guys do it for a living. So, like, we literally could stay up three nights in a row, which we did all day, 24-7, light plants up, and we literally did build a road from scratch. And it wasn't because of how the manual told us. I had an XO who was a licensed engineer that did the stormwater plan. I had all of my section sergeants or squad leaders um, in each of the platoons did some level of construction on the civilian side and knew how to operate every piece of equipment on the civilian side. And I had myself, who was a quote-unquote what we call construction manager in the civilian side, who could write the schedule and manage the flow of the logistics and the, you know, the master vision. That I don't know if I will ever, could say I ever saw in active duty because people in the turnover, they get trained on their combat tasks, I would say, but for those those skills that you need years and years and years of experience and training on, very few units probably have that in conventional army. And in the National Guard, these guys don't need to train on it every day. They do it in the real world. We would actually come together and they can knock out things in a weekend that you never thought possible. And so I was hooked, right? I was like, wow, this is cool. All while I had the NCOs also telling me, hey, sir, you need to back off a little bit. We'll get the mission done. But don't be over, don't scrutinize us too hard of how we do it. I'm like, what the hell are these guys talking about? And they they have their very unique way of doing business at times. Um, they have a unique way of celebrating sometimes. Um, but I would tell you, 
so the the military discipline that I was used to, you know, uniforms are, you know, when you run equipment every day and you're in and out of a dozer and you're in and out of a scraper, I mean, you're, you know, these guys walked around in coveralls most of the time because they wrecked everything they owned by running equipment. So when you're used to guys, you know, and remember class A inspections at Fort Bragg, there was going to be no class A inspection with this guys. I mean, they, they were covered in grease every single weekend. Um, and I just had to get used to that. Um, now, you know, you go to the other parallel path. Um, I'm, I'm on a construction site. I know nothing about what subcontractors do for a living versus a construction manager versus um, how to build a building that's 100 feet in the air with steel and then fill it with concrete decks. Um, well, what did, you know, what's rebar, right? The last time I knew what rebar was, I was, you know, in concrete, design of reinforced concrete, you know, the quote unquote dork, right? Dork class at West Point. And I, uh, now I'm seeing it real time and I'm expected to be some level of expertise and quality control so that it, you know, there's no liability because now lawyers are involved, right? If you screw up a job, you miss the schedule, there's liquidated damages. You, you, I'm like, so now I'm trying to interweave business and what I see. Meanwhile, I got National Guard guys telling me to lay off, calm down a little bit. My civilian side, I need to pick up the pace. And then I'm jamming this all together. Meanwhile, we're planning for a wedding. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, my, I, I, to this day, my wife, I, I don't know how she puts up with it. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily putting up with me. I don't know how she puts up with the randomness and the crazy amount of variables and things that are in play 24-7. Because one day I could tell her I'm doing this, the next day I'm telling her I'm doing this, and the two don't have anything to do with each other or even the same employer and or um, it could be a guard issue, it could be a um, construction issue, it could be a design issue, it could be a personnel issue. And she, I, how she listens to my nonsense, um, God bless her heart. Um, but we got the wedding plan and we got married. Um, we decided we were going to try to have kids right away. Fortunately, it happened right away. I would say two months after our honeymoon, um, my son Noah was on the way. Um, my stepson was, uh, I think, in the fourth fourth grade at the time. Um, uh, and we it was now we need to find a house, right? So all three parallel paths going again. So like um, the same time we started looking for a house, my wife was one month from delivering Noah we're trying to figure out how Evan's going to finish the school year before we move into the new house. And, um, we're in the middle, probably at the middle of the critical path of the, uh, the billion dollar construction site that I'm on, which is global foundries. And I was, I, I remember days where I would drive in to work at five in the morning. I would pull over to the side of the road, take a 40 minute power nap so I could be there at six bright, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, to be the first guy on the job site to make sure the day got off without a hitch. And then if anything went wrong, I wouldn't be driving home until um, 7 or 8 o'clock at night with a pregnant wife who's in pain at that stage of the pregnancy, just absolutely furious with me. And um, <laughs> it, I did that, and every construction job at that size is no different, right? And I kept doing it over and over again from 2009, right after our honeymoon. We broke ground on that job right after our honeymoon, and I went from 2009 all the way to 2013, where we had built building after building, billion after billion of dollars, right? And um, my th second child, Grace, is born. Um, <laughs> and I was done with company command and got moved to brigade um, as a brigade engineer. So... I'm moving up in the civilian world, construction superintendent to construction manager to senior construction manager, um, civil structural architectural being my specialty. I'm now I'm a major as a brigade engineer officer. We're approaching 2014. Two little kids at the house. Um, stepson is fifth, sixth grade. And 
our unit gets told we're going to JRTC for a potential deployment. I went, what? I didn't even go to JRTC for any of my deployments active duty. What the hell am I going to need to go to JRTC for? I go and brag you got the phone call and they sent you back then. And sometimes, I mean, if you were in if you were in division, you'd often um, go to JRTC, but the core engineer battalions would just get sent, right? So I'm like, wow, I don't, how the hell do I do my civilian job, have two little kids at the house and miss 14 to 30 days of work? I, I had no idea, right? And so I somehow finagled with my chain of command that I would fly in the night before I go into the box. Now, for any of you that know JRTC rotations, that just means you missed all the planning. And you're going to drive in with the TAC the next morning. And I did, literally, rode in with the TAC the next morning as a brigade engineer and did all of the box. The night we came out of the box, I did one AAR, which is about 14 days when you look at the total schedule. I got I participated in one AAR, and then they let me individual fly back home to get back to my job. And I think normally it's anywhere from 30 to 40 days that you're you're tied up. Um, and so I, I figured that out, right? So now my wife's not as mad. My boss isn't as mad. However, there's no backup for you, right? So then, um, <laughs> I was like, this is what life's going to be like, right? I go, I don't know if I can do this guard thing anymore. My wife's going to kill me. I don't have any backup at work. There's no, there isn't redundancy in the civilian world, so to speak, unless you're in a huge, huge organization. And if you're a performer, there's definitely not redundancy for you to help you out because there isn't two performers, one waiting for the other one to leave to, you know, for opportunity. I, I just, I struggled for a little while. I was like, how do I do this? And I was fortunate. Um, I have some good friends. Um, I have some good friends that, uh, kind of prop me up and commiserated with me about their active duty time. Um, Buddies like Sanborn and Hett stayed active duty. One still is active duty. Um, I, regular phone calls with them kept me going. Um, and then I would tell you, though, the NCOs in the National Guard tend to be unbelievably sensitive to how busy their officer, their good officers are, I'm float my own boat a little bit, are in the civilian world. So I had some awesome sergeant majors in the Vermont National Guard, all who had been active duty all some who had been officers resigned their commission, went back down to squad leader, worked their way up to sergeant major even. And um, they just, I don't know if they coddled or prodded or twisted arms, but they keep you going um, um, in it. And I decided to stay in. And at that point I was moved. I had to get ILE knocked out. I had to um, go to battalion staff and there was a beb now in the state of Vermont. I was able to, to go after that and become a battalion commander. But I'll tell you, it's like, so now here's some questions that come up. It's like, okay, I'm going to do ILE. ILE is all distance learning in the National Guard for a guy who's busy in the civilian world like me. So, you know, four in the morning, 10 o'clock at night, after kids and wife go to bed, it, it's crazy. Like, I, again, I, I swear to God, I, I probably could be classified as insane, because I, if I look back and look at what I did, I don't think I, I was nuts for trying it. Um, meanwhile, still have to be at work at 6.30 you know, a.m. every morning and work till 5, 5.30 at night. Um, and that, that's just the rhythm you get into. Um, and it's been a crazy wild ride. Um, and still keep up with trying to go to lacrosse games, trying to go to soccer games, trying to go to band concerts, student-teacher conferences, yada, yada, yada. It's it's a constant juggling act. And, and I would tell you, I think the only reason I do it is for whatever reason, I fell in love with the chaos of complex problems and trying to be able to figure out how to solve them. The, the, the thing that you notice when you transition, um, 
And it's not just a, a rank thing. When you transition from being a company commander and a captain to a field grade officer, um, is your ability to personally do everything um, becomes impossible because the scope increases so much. And learning how to delegate and manage time, but also to just ask for help. How hard was it for you to 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 make that transition to start asking for help, or did those NCOs, the the people at work, did they proactively see that you were you were burning too much bandwidth and asked to take we some were, of that weight? Yeah, if we were to rewind right back to you know being a civil engineering major, major right, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but the ungodly difficult problem sets and projects that they had us work on that we had two or three people in a project group with. And, and I know you and I have talked in the past, like, you know, I had guys like Bernstein and Sambor now they're like borderline geniuses. So it made my life a lot easier, but, um, you know, you, everybody had to take a share of it. You, one guy couldn't do everything. Right. And, um, you fast forward to, um, that I think it'd be 2011 ish when I, I was making that transition from, you know, company grade to field grade, but I was also making the transition from, like a guy out in the field to management and my civilian job, it all came forced very, very quickly. So I don't know if I had much of a choice but to ask for help because it was all a giant avalanche at once. Um, I had employees now. I had complex issues, logistics, you name it, um, on the civilian side. And I um, was working with a brigade staff. And I had never, I, you know, you know, you look at a company commander, engineer wise of a separate company, you know, that works for a troop command. I didn't even report to anybody barely. When I was at Bragg, I reported the battalion commander, but I didn't have to deal with brigade S2s, the entire the entire S2 section, the terrain team, um S4, STO, I mean, or SPO, I mean, all these acronyms and people and staff officers and they're I'm like, what the god's name did I get myself into? And then the cool the thing, the biggest thing, um besides being forced and all that, is that the the part-time mentality forces you to, to, to work with others. So the I felt actually rather welcome and comfortable because it felt like I was on one of those teams back at West Point working on a, a problem set again. Because we all had from Friday at 5 o'clock at night to Sunday at 5 o'clock at night to, to get done what you know normally would take um, a week's worth of planning, right? Like, how do you do mission analysis now, obviously, at a JRTC rotation, you get mission analysis done pretty good. There's all sorts of different timelines you can follow. But, like, we don't do it all the time, right? So you, you got to get it done by Sunday at 2 to brief the, the brigade commander, and then you can go home. The only way to do that was to work together, and, and that climate was welcoming, right? Um, I learned a lot from some guys that had been the S2 types for years. I learned a lot about logistics that I had never learned. And then I was able to take that same stuff back to my civilian job and apply it in construction. And, and I, you know, you're asking how the transition from field grade to their company grade with field grade went. The, the thing that really was, was done on me is the what I thought were separate parallel paths were the same path. Like I actually was starting to find the similarity in a construction site to brigade level operations and planning and um, execution, you know sink matrices, horse blankets, um, different staff sections responsible for different things, regular, regular back briefs to the boss. You know, everybody, you know, everybody, National Guard thought I was a psycho because I, I used to say, hey, I don't mind MDMP. This makes sense. And they're like, MDMP sucks. We don't want to do this. And I was like, 
Yeah, but before every job, when we get a bid on a huge industrial construction project, we have to tear this thing apart and plan it. And you have a guy that's good at logistics. You have a guy that's good on intelligence. And in the civilian world, the intelligence would be, who are your competitors? Um, what's the workforce? What subcontractors in the area? What's the resources? Um, like, I'm starting to think to myself, I'm like, oh my God, I just found a civilian career that just basically took the place of what I would have done if I had stayed active duty. Now, I don't know if some people would like that or not, you know, especially those who wanted to get out really, really bad. I did. I wanted to get out for a different reason. I didn't get out active duty because I, did, I hated active duty. I just wanted to do more. Um, so I somehow managed to find a civilian. In my mind, I found managed to find a civilian field that's identical to the, I guess, the modus operandi of military operations. Don't have to worry about the you know, the tradition and the military discipline aspect of it and the rank structure, but all of that thought process and higher level of learning and thought that's required continues day to day at my current job or any of the jobs I've had since around that same transition from company grade to field grade. Um, and so when I finally acknowledged that, everything kind of, it felt like a weight kind of got pulled off my chest because I said, all right, just accept it. And now why don't you actively try to, every time you take a step in the civilian world, try to make that same step in the military, right? So I started looking at, okay, now I'm up out of the trenches in the civilian world and I'm helping plan, I'm helping bid jobs, I'm helping um, run an operation. I need to be operations level. I need to be an S3 or an XO. And I I really do feel I, I, I force myself to keep doing that even to today. Um, you needed You needed a way to bounce the learning back and forth and it actually helped me with my civilian employers to understand, hey, I'm going to get this training. This is what we're learning to do, and this is how it applies to large-scale construction operations. And almost ultimately, all of my leadership that I've had in the civilian world have been very supportive, and they've been like, hell yeah, I don't have to pay for it. I mean, I just got to pay you while you're gone. That's chump change. Go ahead. You know, go to JRTC for a month. And so when you fast forward to now I'm a battalion XO, and I go to a, I went to the whole JRTC rotation now. I got there right after the Advon as the XO and I left with the main body because um, I had to go back to my job um, as the XO. I think I was there 35 days in a row. I missed my job and all my work just sat there on my desk until I got back. But I would never give back that opportunity. I mean, that I, I, I had, I don't know how many people say they have fun at JRTC, but we did. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a coin rotation, right? It was a force on force. It was decisive action and we were actually doing like stuff I hadn't get, you know, I hadn't got to do that since I was a brand new lieutenant. And here I am planning out how to set in a defense um with my battalion commander. Um and, and we're briefing the brigade commander on how we're going to utilize engineer assets. And the BEB at that time at that rotation, we had 10 companies. You know, that whole special troops battalion goes away and the BEB now is like the task manager. Task force manager, like we had 10 companies of MPs, engineers, chemical, we had every protection asset known to man and a bunch of additional engineer companies, and we controlled the entire rear area. Now, not to get into a huge doctrinal conversation, whether that makes sense or not, what a miserable experience to try to manage the rear area and lay in a defense up front. Um, but you don't get to do that stuff in the National Guard unless you go to a rotation. So I, you know... Um, I, you know, the transition didn't bother me. I didn't acknowledge it. I think it was me coming to terms with what I had decided to do in life is what happened around that point. Long way to answer your question, Joe, but I think that's really what was going on. Coaching, teaching, mentoring, and leading. How did that change? And then civilian world versus your guard requirements. 
so I um I have an interesting I had an interesting struggle, right? My my stepson, oh, probably when at the same time I was battalion staff was at that sophomore, junior, senior in high school range. So like I'm trying to like explain how it was back in the late nineties applying for colleges. <laughs> 20 years later, it's not the same, right? And like, I, I you know, I have to hand it to, to teachers and guidance counselors, but I, I'm not, I'm still not overly impressed of the whole process. You know, I had to figure it out for myself. And then nowadays with all the, the media platforms and everything's online and it wasn't easy to help my stepson figure out what he wanted to do so he could zero in on a couple colleges. Um, and I, I found out that, you know, that age group was what the youngest people in my formation were, you know, give or take five years, you know, he's 17, they're 20 ish. Um, they're all struggling with the same thing. It's just mass information overload. And, you know, I'm, you know, how do I coach, <laughs> how do I coach my stepson to filter out the information and get to the bottom line? I'm sitting here with dry erase boards, trying to show them how to process elimination. And it's like, I, I couldn't get, he finally dawned on him and he actually went into engineering school. Go figure. Um, <laughs> But I, nanoscience though, so it's not quite uh, <laughs> way above whatever I was capable of. But um, I, I had the same, I had that same struggle as a battalion XO with some of the the younger folks. Um, it was like no matter which way, whether you tried coaching, whether you tried mentoring, training, it's like, man, what is wrong with me? They don't, they don't see it. And I, only thing that I could tell you about that is in my own personal experience, the only way that I found it worked was I literally just had to let go and say, go try to do this. And then halfway through you doing it, we're going to meet and I want you to tell me what you think is going well and what's not. Um, that's not the way I was taught. That's not the way I learned. Um, I, I mean, I was used to the, you know, I've been yelled at and screamed at, <laughs> probably pissed at. <laughs> um, and that, I mean, my, I had a hammers thrown at me. I, I just, my learning journey was very different. And um, that's not, I guess I had to learn, you know, the old school training mentality, um, you know, no sleep, no water, no food, stress, stress until you break. And that's how you learn. That is not realistic probably these days. And um, you kind of had to be willing to, you had to show that you threw the safety net out. Now you're going to walk that beam across the water, but now there's a safety net. There's an invisible safety net there called Colonel Spainberg that's going to help you if you fall. And halfway across the beam, we're going to talk about it, and we'll 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 help you. I'll help you get to the end. And um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm still overly comfortable with it. I tell you now, even on the civilian side, um, the coaching piece is easier. And I'd wish that I could just go out on a rugby pitch and make them do sprints, do battle, you know, drill after drill, after drill, after drill, repetition. And, you know, that piece come a lot easier for me. Um, I tell you when it's sought, when, you know, now I have to bring people in and be like, Hey, what do you, you know, I have to consciously remind myself, what do you think you should do next? What are the consequences of that decision? Oh, by the way, if, if we go decide to go forward with this decision, who are you going to affect in addition to the, you know, tangible consequences. And do you want that reputation after you've made all those decisions? And it works, but it's painful because I don't, I have to remind myself to go through that. Um, Cause it's just not the way maybe we went through that and I missed it, <laughs> but it's not the way I remember um, my last 20 years going. Um, 
I think it's making me better personally because I have to learn a little more of the mentor side than the coaching and the training. Um, I think it's easier to go into a gym and tell people to do three sets of weights and, you know, add more weight when they're ready. Um, I think it's probably a little easier when you have high performers and you, you tell them to run a play and you tweak the play. I think mentoring them to learn to be capable on their own is probably the most challenging part of that equation. Do you find that that, that, that is more rewarding though? I, it is very rewarding to develop and mentor someone that's, whether they work for you or, you know, parallel to you, and then you watch them succeed on their own without you standing there right behind them. I think, I think if you could look back and name all the people that you've mentored and it, it, it and they've actually already have a successful career of their own, um, it's very rewarding. Um, I, I don't know if everybody wants to challenge themselves with that every day of the week, but um, I, I was able to, you know, one of the, you know, if we fast forward a little bit, I'm a battalion commander. I just finished battalion command in July and I did it as th- for three years. And the joke in the national guard is, is it takes you two years just to learn your job. Cause you're, if you were to do the math on how many days I'm a battalion commander versus an active duty commander, I mean, 365 times two, right? Um, that's an active duty commander, roughly two years. Well, if you multiply two days a month and 14 days a year and you do that for three years, I haven't even come close. What a third. And I'm, I don't do small math anymore. Like- um, 270 even, days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not, I hardly, hardly even broke the cusp of knowing what I was doing for a living. Um, that, that, that's how we like, you know, pick on ourselves. Um, we don't count all the late night phone calls and issues that we deal with Monday through Friday when we're not getting paid. Right. Um, I would tell you that the best thing that ever happened to me is when my Sergeant Major came up to me and told me that, I was one of the first officers that had grasped what it meant to nurture the soul of the unit and to focus on that rather than just the dictated mission. And he said, and then he followed with, I know you have that painting by Don Trioni of Chamberlain charging down Little Round Top, and someday you'll understand that's what you mean to me. And that was his final salute to me. And him and I still talk. This guy did 40 years. He got a Legion of Merit. 40 years active duty combined with National Guard Service. And um, retired at age 60. And uh, infantry guy through and through with a secondary MOS of combat engineer. That I was fortunate to have him as my battalion sergeant major. And this guy, I I was like, in a matter of 30 seconds at my farewell to the battalion, so to speak, afterward when we were getting pictures together pretty much just told me what real important thing to him and the soldiers was that I kind of felt it, but I didn't know how to put it into words. And I think that goes into the whole coach mentoring training conversation is, is what, you know, how do you be successful, right? Like how do you make an organization successful? Is it you fire everybody and bring in Olympic talent? No, that won't work. Is it, is it you, um, you yell and scream for until you turn blue in the face, until they do things exactly the way you want them done as like a micromanaged toxic nightmare? No, that won't work either, right? Um, do you just let everybody else do the work for you and you go around and you take the glory and say, I, 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 no, that won't work either, right? So so what are you really doing when you're a leader of an organization, especially like battalion commander higher, right? There's no way you can touch every single soldier and meet every single soldier and talk to them every single day of the week, right? It's just too many people. I think brigade level, I think division level, it gets bigger and bigger. There's no way, like, the opportunity to touch every single soldier. The only way you can is with some sort of vision. And um, 
and, and to identify what the soul of the unit is, if it has one. If it doesn't have one, that's an even more complex problem, right? Because you have to create some sort of soul for your unit. Um, and I'm not a huge, you know, I hate to say that I'm a really not a religious guy. I mean, I grew up very, very, um, went to church every Sunday. Um, I had an Episcopalian priest that was ang- pretty much Anglican, like straight from the church of England. He probably, I felt like he trained with the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? And um, <laughs> I was on the altar the whole nine yards. Um, I didn't like the Protestant church at West Point. Um, it was felt a little loosey-goosey to me, so I would go to Catholic Mass, even though I'm not Catholic, because it was a little more Gothic traditional. I like the Gothic traditional you know, feel like you're paying a penance when you walk in the door, you're going to get struck by lightning. And then you listen to the jury organ music. I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I like that. I think it, I think it was like the, the random kick in the butt to make me feel um, worse about myself while I was at West Point. But um, <laughs> I, I, um, I, I tell you that I went all my deployments. I, I wasn't overly big on the talking with the chaplain. I didn't want the wishy-washy. I wanted the, how am I touching you know, where's the real spirit and soul and everyone and where's, you know, what's the guiding light, so to speak, that's keeping me whole. And I, I don't know. I, I say, I, I don't know. At times I tell you, I found it. At times I tell you, I had no clue what I was talking about. I was full of shit, but, um, I, it dawned on me in that one conversation that, you know, there's the connection, right? Everybody's got some sort of soul. And if you can get everybody's soul to connect to the soul or the vision or the philosophy of the, the unit, well, then you've, Everything else is easy after that, right? And um, it was a, it was a pivotal conversation. Um, I, I at the time I had just started the job I'm in now, my civilian job, where I, I have a, a regional director role. I can't touch everybody. All I can do is get them to buy into the vision I have or or soul, whatever you want to call it, right? And if you can get them to buy into that, then you you get a, you can get people to follow you, and and then 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 it's easier conversations when you want to tweak train when you want to tweak how they train their people, when you want to tweak how they do their business, how you want to, you know, change SOPs, it all comes together easier. Do you find when you were a battalion commander and you're working with the guard and you understand um, how much your soldiers are giving up, they're getting a lot in return. They're, they're getting a lot of educational benefits, healthcare benefits when they get mobilized. They get a lot of rewards, but they're also putting their family on pause. They're putting their civilian careers on pause. Do you think it's easier to tap into that purpose and that motivation as a leader? Or was it, are you able to do a similar ability to tap into that with your, your civilian only counterparts? I don't think they're exclusive each other. I think, I, I truly believe now that at, at my level um, in leadership, both sides, that what I, a technique I learned on one side will work and apply on the other side. And I just continue and now add to my, um, my kit bag, if you want to use the old vernacular. <laughs> um, and, and I never, I never understood those conversations. We, I remember standing in all sorts of different classes or military intercession classes and talking about the tools in your kit bag, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> but, um, I think, I think now it's all coming to, to fruition that all of these lessons that have, you know, culminated, on both sides now. I've been fortunate and I would never regret that having these two separate paths that I've found are very, very interweaved have just given me the ability to, you know, I've found myself in a conference room with a civilian employee and say, hey, you know, on the military, we do this crazy thing, blah, 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 blah. And it kind of lightens the mood because they're not, they're not, now they're not thinking about themselves and about what I'm about to talk to them about. They're thinking about this random story that 
I maybe saw, thought was exciting, and they may think that I'm this old, crusty guy talking about something they have no idea what I'm talking about. But you find yourself, you can you can find a similar scenario often, take the stress level down a little bit, and then be like, okay, so then, so so how do you think we would do this in our world here, not in the military? And I've had people say, hey, well, why don't we do it just like you did there? Because that makes way too much sense. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard anybody say that anything we do in the Army makes sense. But um, <laughs> joking aside, but that that's the thing. It's like... um. I have a lot more respect, I would say, now, uh, you know, of all those National Guard units that I met on deployments back when I was active duty than I ever thought. I mean, there used to be, even before I left, left the active duty, scumbag guard units, this and that. I was like, but they're a group of great individuals that have to juggle. They have to somewhat stay lethal-ish. <laughs> I'll say ish because it's tough. Um, with a family and managing a civilian job. And that's that's not easy to do. And then all of a sudden get told to leave your job for a year and go deploy. Um, and some of them make a lot less money. Um, it's, it's, it's a challenging thing. And um, those lessons help, I think, some of the civilians that have never done that type of service here um, relate in a way because a lot of them have had to pick up and go to a job site. In my, in my world, a lot of them had to pick up, leave their families and go to a job site because that was where the money was. And um, a lot of traveling occurs, um, per diem living. Um, sounds familiar at all and, um, TDY trips constantly. Right. And, um, they, uh, they start to relate to each other. And, you know, if I had known, you know, some of them, some of these big, big construction companies or, um, design build companies like I'm in have started to levy some of that and get, try to recruit veterans and, um, prior service into it. Um, because of that experience and that skill set and being able to understand the, the complexities of managing a lot of different things. What gets you up in the morning now? What what has is feeding your passion now that you've you've completed battalion command and the guard, um, and you've reached a, a pretty high level with engineering? Which side continues to continue to keep you going and keep you passionate? Now, to, to answer that question, that's actually a really good question. Um, you're actually forcing me to reflect a little bit. Um, <laughs> not rehearsed. Um, I would say that the, and I joke around with people, um, on the military side and I, I started doing it on the civilian side. I was like, you know, there's Nathan, there's Nate, and then there's Colonel Spieber, right? They're my three personalities, depending on when you get me, where you get me and what uniform I'm wearing. And, um, I think the three of them, all three of them would <laughs> say, uh, as I joke around a little bit, all three of them would say that, um, the thrill that gets me up every morning and has probably since I went to West Point was the, the complex problem scenario, right? Like if I were to wake up in the morning and it was what is one plus one and all I had to do is say two, I would not be happy, right? It has to be complex problems that need some level of intelligence and thought to solve the problem. And then it's going to need a collaborative group of people to execute the solution. And um, it doesn't matter whether it's in the military, the civilian side, but that's the type of career, that's that's what I'm going to be destined to probably do and continue to work on are those complex problems. Now, the cool thing about what I do currently is EPCM, Engineer Procure Construction Managed Jobs of Semiconductor Life Sciences Facilities, are just that. And at times you wonder if their solutions can even be found, but they are unbelievably complex <laughs> problems that require a lot of people to collaboratively work together to, you know, to, to, to solve or to execute the mission. And, you know, you find yourself in the, the intelligence phase, the proposal phase, the, 
the um, contract review, which, you know, you could call it the op board review if you want from higher headquarters. Then you <laughs> kick off with your team, which could be like a warning order. Then you design and plan, you know, you could call it IPB and, you know, um, COA, dev, whatever you want to call it. And and then you go out and you execute, right? And um, that execution can be anywhere from a couple months to a few years of constant logistical and manpower issues. And and then when it's all said and done, you clean up, you pick up all your equipment, you put it back in the, the yard or the motor pool, so to sport, sort, and then you go to look for the next one. And I, I don't know, you, put, you can do whatever analogies you want for any of these listeners if you wanted to, to go through from day one to day whatever of an operation and how the life cycle of an operation goes. That's, that's what I still do. Um, and it keeps me going. Um, I, uh, I, I tell you now my, on my military career, I, I just accepted a reserve position. So I'm going to, I'm going to get out of the Vermont army national guard and I'm going to transfer into the U S army reserves. And I'm going to take a position, um, it's called the, uh, EPLO, um, emergency preparedness liaison officer for the state of Vermont. And each state has one. They report to, um, the defense coordinating element, active duty commander, so a post-brigade job for active duty is the DCO, um, the de- defense coordinating officer. He's in charge of the defense coordinating element, and they're aligned to a FEMA region. So now you have an active duty commander with an active duty staff, but all of their um, full bird colonel, lieutenant colonel positions um, are reservists part-time. And so I took that opportunity, and I have my minimum time and grade as a lieutenant colonel. I've been to AOC that's an 06 position. So in theory, Nathan now knows he can make Fulbright Colonel. How long it's going to take me, I don't know. It could be a year. It could be two years. Um, we'll see what my board, whether they put me in for promotion now or when my board meets. Um, but now I know I can achieve that, right? And in the process, I'm going to do all DISCA-related activities. So I've got to the point now where I've stepped away for the operational environment in my um, military career so that I can be a director of large-scale operations on my civilian career. So I, in the matter of 22 years, and I just realized this, I, I've completely flipped the hats around where it was all active duty operations, right? We got midpoint of my career, it was a hybrid, and now we're at the end of my military career where I'm going to step back and be more of a liaison role so that I can be probably, if not soon, because I'm sure I'll retire in the next three to four years, from the military, um, full-time operations on the civilian side. Now, if you want to draw a graph on a dry erase board, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now it's sticky notes and clouds. <laughs> um, but it's been quite the journey. Um, I had a lot of great people help me along the way. I still have a lot of great friends that I talk to, some still active duty, some just recently retired. Um, like I already mentioned, I still talk to my sergeant major. Um, and I told you I was going to do this before we started, you know, and to the classmates that we've lost and some of the 2002 grads that we've lost, um, you didn't know how close you were to some of them until you, you're reading a Rolling Stone book or you're reading a, a newspaper blast or um, you get a phone call um, that someone unfortunately had taken their lives. All those scenarios had happened to me and um, they're still warriors to this day, even though not with us. So I do appreciate all that help. It's that, that, um, that talent. Um and the people around you, whether it was your sergeant majors realizing that when you, you joined the guard and, and you were burning the candle at, at uh, both ends or um, 
later on when you were in battalion command, your sergeant major, and, and your team uh, supporting you. There's only so many people out there. And to find and to experience life with them and help them shoulder and carry that burden is a huge thing. And so we got to reflect um, and we've got to appreciate how, how lucky we are to have time with those people, whether they're still with us or not. And there are, and all of them are unbelievably great people. That's the most, that's like the best part of it, right? Is that they're not just ordinary run in the mill. They're all, you know, I said the word warrior, but they're all like great individuals and random skill sets or skill sets they chose we're very, very fortunate to have been with a great group. And I, I love listening to the, the phone calls, Joe, because everybody seems, even though we have very, very different paths, right? Everybody seems to come back to the same conclusion that the number of great people that were fortunate enough to have been in their presence has made our lives that much more exciting and, and interesting, fun, every adjective you could probably throw at it. Yeah. And it, it just makes you want to make sure that you maintain those ties. Right. Huh. Right. Because you want you want to prolong that experience of, of, of sharing just a little bit more time while you can, uh, whether it's another phone call, whether it's the opportunity to work together, whether it's just a reunion um, or a mini reunion at a football game. Uh, you just want to extend that time because you don't want to lose it. So as we wrap up, um, do you have any closing comments about the impact uh, that this journey has had on you from West Point to now? You know, it's an interesting question. Um and it's good to close a little different as we got a little solemn there. Um, I, I used to, you know, I remember driving out the gate, right? Graduation day. <laughs> Don't look in the rearview mirror. I'm done with this place. Right. <laughs> and, um, and then, and then I, I remember meeting, uh, Mark Sanborn and, uh, <laughs> Flanagan, <laughs> um, at West Point on the, on the top of the, you know, on the top of the parking lot of, um, was it Turner Hall, uh, where the library's underneath the parking lot. And, um, I think I got it right. And, uh, <laughs> we all met to drive down to Benning, Georgia for ranger school through a blizzard, by the way. And oh, by the way, every Denny's was closed the whole way there. And, um, because of the blizzard and the waffle houses were closed and we're, I'm driving out of, uh, we're driving out of the gate, right? again and i'm like i don't want to look at this place like and i don't know why i don't know why i was i shouldn't have been right and um and then i go back for the 10 year um and ironically the 10 year <laughs> it's 2011 and it's the same time that crack pot of shit was happening in my life right like i tried to do everything all at once so, you know i got a baby at home i'm on a huge job site i'm going into brigade staff right you know i'm trying to learn to be a dad to my stepdad when he's in that middle school age like i'm like now I'm back here at the 10 year and I get to see the rugby facility. And that ironically was the senior project for our civil engineering problem was to design a rugby facility with stadium, with a cantilevered sunroof type deal and artificial turf and all the nine yards. Right. And I'm standing there and I'm going, that's not quite how I envisioned it, but this is pretty cool looking. It's really pretty. Right. And you know, the whole analogy goes, I don't really do pretty. I only build ugly buildings. So what do I know what I'm talking about? And um, I go, this is different, right? Like I never actually walked it to appreciate, you know, or call it the ambiance. I, I, I've only ever been here to graduate. I never was here to reflect. I never was here to, um, to do anything. Right. And so I immediately then walked to the cemetery and I went and saw, um, Dave Bernstein. Um, cause I, I hadn't, I was at jump master school at the time. I had never got to go pay my respects. And then the thing that happened, um, and this is a very weird closing, closing note, but I had realized that I had bucketed all of these feelings um, of all of these life experiences 
and, and had never let my body express it, right? So, you know, I'm going to go through them really quickly, and I don't know how we got to this. You're really good at coming up with ways to get me to talk about stuff, Joe. But, um, I, you know, while I was at West Point, you know, I, I, I was engaged to be married. That didn't go. I, my uncle committed suicide while I was at West Point. My grandfather died while I was at West Point. Then um, I learned it. You, you can't. You can't deal with it, right? You deal with it by not dealing with it so that you can stay at task and graduate, right? So then um, later on, you know, like I said, I was talking to you earlier before we started the call, you know, Bernstein passes away while I'm at Jumpmaster School. He had been almost every civil engineering project that I was on. Um, then fast forward, you know, in 2008, uh, was it, two, it was 2010 or 11, I think Brian Collins took his own life. Um, you know, I don't, for those of you who don't know who he is, he was, a, he was on the boxing team. Um, and I think he was a December grad. Um, but he was, um, a friend of Sanborn's and mine. Um, and then, um, you fast forward and you know, I'm on a train ride to New York city and I'm reading about 2002 guys that I did CTLT with guys that passed away that I, that I, I do different random memories that you and I have talked about. And, um, I had never, ever let my body tie it all together. And so when I went back for the 10 year reunion, it was like, you can imagine the emotion. Um, and I don't even know why I'm not an overly emotional guy, but like my body finally said, it's time to let go. Nate. So like, that was the first time that it wasn't hard to look in the rearview mirror. It was kind of like, Holy crap not Nathan, we as a group, right? We as a group of cadets, um, call it the long gray line, whatever you want to call it. We've gone through a lot and a lot of it's been really cool. A lot of it's been really bad and collectively it's been amazing. Right. And so now fast forward 10 years, I'm at the 20 year reunion and everybody's joking that everybody looks the same. You know, you see the posts on Facebook. It's like, Hey, it was good to see everybody just a little older and some more bags under their eyes. You all look exactly the same. And the funny thing is, is we all were able to pick up conversations. It was like where we left off the day we graduated. And I think that's a measure of true friendship. Like if you cannot see someone for years and pick up where you left off, I mean, that's amazing, right? There's people that I, I know I can't do that with. And, and that's in my mind, I've, I've been able to learn the definition of a true friend. Um, and so it, it, to go back to your question and to go back over the 20 some odd years, what did I... I think we gained, we all gained, and I personally gained true friends, whether some are very, very close or some are classmates. We have this huge repository of friendship that I think every one of us truly knows that we can reach out. And, and, it, and, it, and it dawns on you how good that is when certain classmates will look like they're in trouble and the amount of support of people willing to call and help out. And I know you've probably seen the Facebook times or LinkedIn posts where people need help and our classmates have reached out and talked them off the edge or helped them with jobs or helped them with that network is something I never would have realized when I went there. And now I understand the true importance of it 20 some odd years later. And it's, it's, it's completely selfless. And, and that's the hard part. They're still like, it, it's still hard to grasp that, that they just want to help you because of our shared experiences and our shared values. And I, and I think you and I are the same and we would, I mean, I've had the opportunity and, and I don't mean a good opportunity. I mean, I've, I've been in those shoes where I've had to call some people and talk to them, whether they be NCOs or classmates of ours. Um, you don't do it because you think it's going to make you better. You do it because you want to help. And how do can you, can you say West Point was a training program to make us want to help other people? I don't know if that was their original envision, <laughs> but, but I tell you, it taught me how to be willing to help other people 
and not ask for anything in return. Um, because you don't learn that. I, I think if you're a good person, you'll do it. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think you, no one teaches you how to do it. No. And, uh, I think every rep, every time you do it again, every time you help someone else, um, the propensity for you to do it again increases. And I think that's kind of where we are now is, is that moment in life where, uh, you, you're, you're secure enough, um, in, in your ability to, to ask for help, but also secure enough that I can, I can risk a little bit here. I can bend a little bit there to make sure I take care of my buddy. And on that note, um, let's wrap it up. Hey, I really appreciate it, Joe. Um, it's great work. Um, you, I've been listening to a lot of our classmates phone calls since I first reached out to you to make, <laughs> make a schedule for, uh, and uh, the stories I'm hearing are awesome. Um, to the stories I'm hearing and the stories I know we're not hearing. Um, I think it's a great story everybody's telling. And I, I love listening to our classmates. It's amazing. Some of the things everybody's doing, um, keep up the good work. Um, and I'm going to keep listening, man. You got me hooked. All right. Till duty is done. Thanks, Joe. Through the gray has its first sponsor, urban industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.